welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens and to the start of June. Can you believe it? We are now into, into the halfway mark of 2023. In many respects, oh, thank God. In others, wow, time is moving quickly. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with those movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, composers, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, you name it, we talk with them. And we're going to be doing a lot of talking today. Uh, I'm very excited. The midpoint of the show. Joining us fresh off an appearance at Cannes, Patricia Chica will be with us to talk about her award-winning film, Montreal Girls, which, ju- which just opened in theaters on Friday. So I'm very excited to talk to Patricia. It's a very, I love the film. It's charming. It's an interesting coming-of-age story because it's really a coming-of-age story of somebody in their 20s. And it's shot and set in and shot in Montreal, in and it focuses on the artistic community. Um, I really enjoyed the film, and I can't wait to talk to Patricia. And with June now comes Emmy Awards, FYC for your consideration season. And the campaigning is starting, and I am so excited that... My FYC coverage this year starts with, as per usual, Yellowstone. Anyone that knows me, if you listen to the show, if you follow me on social media, you know this is the show for me. I'm a diehard, diehard Yellowstone fan. So it was a great thrill to get to speak with Chad Galstar, editor uh, of Yellowstone. He has been there since day one uh, of, of season one. And he either, and particularly now with season five, seasons four or five, he either edits the whole show or he oversees the editing and comes in and fine tunes and tweaks. But uh, Chad is the guy, along with his team, who's responsible for keeping us on pins and needles. Um, you know, the action, the acting, the romance, the land, that's all well and good. But who's going to find those beats? And who's going to hold those scenes? And who's going to draw out the battle between Jamie and Beth? Or Jamie and Summer in a catfight on the front lawn of the Yellowstone Ranch that rivals Crystal and Alexis in Dynasty from decades ago. Uh, This falls on the editor to find that pacing and those beats. And this is what Chad does. And boy, oh boy, submitted for Emmy consideration for in the category of best editing for television. Hopefully nominations will come out, you know, in a few weeks. uh, And Chad's name will be there. But... This is specifically for Season 5, Part 1. Anybody that knows anything about Yellowstone or has followed entertainment at all knows that 
season five was split into two parts. We were supposed to have part two this summer, but then a brouhaha um, with this one blaming this one, that one blaming that one. It got pushed to the fall. Now with the writer's strike, definitely it's pushed to at least the fall for part two of season five, which will also, as we have now learned, will be the end of Yellowstone proper. But a sequel with undoubtedly without Kevin Costner, um, will start up right after Yellowstone ends. And hopefully with many of the same characters and continuing the story of the battle to save or get rid of the Yellowstone Ranch. So that's what Chad's work focused on with season five is building to this, the climactic final six episodes of season five but now it's it will be building toward when they go back into production building towards the end um but boy oh boy part one ended leaving us all shell-shocked we've got jamie dutton wants to hire a hitman to kill his sister beth beth wants to get rid of jamie and take him to the well-known train station but there's so much that happened in season five, and there was a lot that got expanded, uh, which all the the fans and the diehard the diehard viewers will know. Um, you know, we had some great scenes. Uh, we had live concerts happening this season, which allowed not only the cinematographers but Chad to expand um, the vision. The, you know, the interstitial uh, scene transitions of the landscape of the beautiful mountainous regions in Montana. Uh, more of that. And we had cattle in season five, part, part one. Lots and lots of cattle. More than they've had in all five seasons of Yellowstone. And I think the cattle actually outnumbered the amount of horses that they've had uh, as well over the seasons. It's a fun conversation. It's very insightful. So I'm going to stop blathering and I'm going to let you listen to my exclusive interview with Chad Gell for your consideration for Emmy nominations. Chad Gelstar, editor of Yellowstone Season 5, Part 1. Hi, Chad. Hi. Well, I have to say, this is a real treat to get to speak with you. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I'm, my pleasure. Glad to talk to you. I'm glad you're interested. Uh, I live and die by Yellowstone. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, here we are. I do. I, can, I, I will do my best to answer your questions. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a fun show. It's the, o it's the only series I religiously have watched from the very start. And I'm not even going to admit to how many times I've watched and rewatched all the marathons, the DVDs, and I just rewatched for the fifth time all eight episodes of season five, part one. My goodness, you are you are the true fan. I, I will say that is impressive. I uh, I rarely meet someone who's seen it more than I have, but uh, oh. it maybe maybe happened in this case. They just ran it again. They ran every every three day weekend. They run the whole thing over again. I think so. I was hearing about people watching it this weekend. No matter how many times I watch, mm -hmm. I always find some little nuance. Yeah, good. 
that I didn't pick up before. And also, no matter how many times I watched the season four 17-minute opener yeah. is still the best 17 minutes in television. It's probably my favorite thing I've ever done, to be honest with you. That, that opening was pretty wild. I had a hell of a lot of fun putting that together. Just shootout stuff. It was pretty great. Yeah, that is the single best seventeen minutes of television. Disagree with you on that one. It's every time we I see it, it it sort of makes me laugh because like all of the stuff that we do, and then the rolling the rolling the credits, just like welcome to season four, everybody. This is what it is. Yeah. The first very first time I screened that for Taylor, I just I couldn't help myself. I started laughing at the credits up and he did too just yeah phenomenal but you don't have you don't have an easy task with this show in some respects you have the benefit of being around since day one you've got four seasons now to draw from with season five and that's a good thing but by the same token season five we see the world now really expanding Beyond the beyond the Yellowstone and beyond the little things that happen at Broken Rock, now we've got the whole state. Now that John is governor, and I see this reflected in your editing, and I I'm curious, has the focus shifted at all or just widened? Because the focus is always about the land, that hasn't changed. And everything is built around that. But this year I'm seeing the transitional montages of the landscape. It seems to me they're a little more broad focused now. I can tell you that it's not intentional. You know, the, the land is, is uh, as much of a character as anybody yeah. else in our show. And so those, those little interstitial moments, transitional moments you're talking about are very important because to us it's always, you know, just this subtle reminder like this is what everybody wants this is what everybody's fighting for what they're willing to die for kill for you know depending on who they are so you know they're all it's just it's there so although there's there's certain you know john dutton's role in montana is is expanded and um become more all-encompassing um in in a lot of ways to me the, the 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 interstitial moments center us again they return us to the mm-hmm. like it's still it's about the land it's about his ranch it's about um protecting the legacy of the family so it's also important i mean not just for our audience just as, just as far as the storytelling we're always going back to what is at the center of it which is a story about family you know and so even as he's he's governor now his problems change but his relationships with beth jamie and, and casey and, and rip who's a surrogate son really in a lot of ways um those are still the most important things you know it's, it's what he cares about more than anything that's happening in government it's all about his position in government is, is all about maintaining his family's legacy on the ranch so um i it, it's thrilling to have a different uh, vantage point from which to look at the story and the land and the people but um to me this the story remains the same and what is at the heart of it the core of it has remained the same mm-hmm. it looks like we got some new new interstitial images this year too of the landscape of the mountain ranges yeah we we did there's a few things you know every year we go out and we acquire more footage and some of it is scene specific um you know i remember gosh with the with the which season was the tracking collars with the wolves um we went out and then shot some stuff around that particular area but we're always going back and, and and making sure that we keep things fresh 
And, um, you know, I think the very beginning of episode five this season, um, just when they're out on the, on the, uh, at the top of one of the mountain ranges, and Beth is you know, saying, you know, I, I hate this. Yeah. But it's just this, this beautiful, different perspective on the land. I don't remember, I don't think we had shot in that particular spot before. So, you know, we're just, and even in, in episode one, we're at the, you know, the, the Canadian border in that river, in that pretty exhilarating helicopter scene with, with Casey and the standoff with the Canadian Mounted Police. So, um, you know, the landscape is rich. There's a, you know, within Montana, it's kind of like, in California, there's a, there's a million different environments within that state. Um, and so we are continuing to explore them and, and keep things fresh and keep showing people new things just so that the show continues to grow. It's just amazing. And I'm glad you mentioned watch the Watch and Ride Away episode because yeah. that and going into Cigarettes, Whiskey, a, me- a Meadow, and You yeah. are just, I mean, you talk about exquisite the pacing really i mean that spot that meadow that you talk about in in uh, in episode six is just this beautiful location um i want to say that we had and i and i may be wrong about this but you some sometimes we'll, we'll find a location or scout a location and not have a, a spot for it yet and then something will come up to taylor writes and it's like oh, okay now we're going to use this this location it's going to be perfect um so you know there's 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 just the, you always feel like you're discovering something that no one else has ever seen or showing folks something that no one else has ever seen. And although it's not like the point of the show, it's a wonderful, beautiful byproduct of what we do on the show is that we're sharing this environment with uh, with our audience. And um, it's just, it, it looks otherworldly and it's majestic, but it's just, it's, it's in the United States. You know, it's just an incredible place. It's like the state of Montana. It is spectacular. Tied in there with those two episodes of Watch Him Ride Away and Cigarettes, Whiskey, and Meadow, we have more cattle this year than I think we've had in any episode leading up with yep. <laughs> with the cattle branding, moving the cattle. Yep. And you talk about widescreen. Yeah. It's just amazing with the way it's shot, but also the way you've cut it so that you don't interrupt the flow of this experience. Right, right. Well, I mean, thank you. It's nice of you to, to point out. What's interesting about the way that the show has evolved is that we've gone um, away from special effects. It used to be in the early seasons, we would have to, you know, to get 2,000 cattle, we might have to shoot several hundred cattle and then replicate them digitally. Right. Now we just go get 2,000 cattle. And, and, and so it's a wonderful byproduct of having, you know, the, the show being successful and have Paramount giving us the resources that we need to do that. But but what you're seeing is what we have in front of the camera. It's, it's real. It's actually happening. The folks that are doing that work are cowboys, you know, people that Taylor knows or, or acquaintances of his. Um, you know, the, the people that are not principal cast, obviously. So we're, you're actually seeing this work in the, in, as it happens in the real world. And there's a, you know, the authenticity, which is like the thing that's the most, really most important to us, um, is, is evident. And even if folks can't quite put their finger on why, they can just sense it. They sense that they're seeing something real. And, um, and it feels, again, just spectacular and, and somewhat otherworldly because this is, you know, they're, they're folks that make their whole lives this way and do this work. But we don't really, in, in the TV world, we, we haven't really seen it presented this honestly and accurately before. So, um, and I say that humbly, like, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's enjoyable for me to watch as the footage comes in, as, as hopefully it is for our audience when they see it. I've learned so much about cattle and horses <laughs> and, and all of that in the years that I've been doing Yellowstone. So, um, 
I know a lot more than the average person. I, I, I know maybe the first two pages of the encyclopedia that Taylor knows about it, but like I know, you know, I, I it's continuing to learn and it's um, and it's fascinating to me. And so we try to make sure that we, within the context of the story, give as much of that to our audience as we can. I think people relish that part of our show. Oh, absolutely. Curious, Chad, because the, the pacing is so perfect and you get into episodes like that where we have the surprise of all of a sudden here are all the cattle. We had this in prior seasons with uh, the fuck it and going up the mountain and the horses. Is it difficult for you when you're cutting, and I'm not talking cutting horses like Taylor likes to do, but I used to work for a lawyer who was president of the Cowboy Lawyers, and he was a cutting champion. Gotcha. So, gotcha. I, They're a different kind of uh, thing. So, yeah. yeah but but, I, I do know what you mean. So I got horse knowledge, too, just like you. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious about finding the rhythm, finding the pace, where you want to make that cut. We're coming up a hill, we see space, we see the sun, we see mountaintops, and then all of a sudden we will see 2,000 head of cattle, or at least 1,000 head of cattle till we get them all together. So I'm, yeah. how challenging is that for you? Because I would imagine as you have some of the beauteous shots... You want to yeah. sit on those because they're so languid, they're so gorgeous, but then you've also got to I move mean, that story. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. I mean, the select reels for any number of those cattle sequences that you're just talking about might be several hours long, and that's just like the good stuff that could go on TV. And so putting those sequences together is just a continual process of taking away stuff that might be good. You take away, you, know, you have everything, everything is good. And then you take away the good, so you're only leaving the great. And then you're, you take away the great, so you're only leaving the outstanding. And then you take away the outstanding just for the shots that absolutely take your breath away. I mean, it's corny to say it that way, but really is it the process of removing shots uh, until you're just left with the stuff that you cannot live without putting on TV. You know what I mean? Like people have to see these shots. And you know, I, I, for for any of those, yeah, you know, for any of those sequences, I might have uh, an hour long cut of something that I could just sit and watch and, and be rather entertained by because of what's happening and because of the beauty of what is uh, uh, has been captured by our phenomenal team in the field. Um, but you just you have to you have to make difficult decisions, and some of it does come down to just rhythm and pacing. You know, the cows may start. You know, a lot of this stuff it's it's a it's a dance, the ballet. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's not choreographed, but it's it's this beautiful um, exchange between the cowboys, the wranglers, and the animals themselves, and and they they work off of each other. They they, you know, they depend on each other, even though that's an you know it's an unspoken dependence. And so you you just you may sign okay the rhythm of this scene says like cows kind of start to move this way that they swell you have shots that take you in that proper screen direction and then you might want to go back the other way and, and like I mean it's hard it's hard to get specific about it yeah. but the the main rule of thumb is like taking away as much as you can and leaving the absolute essence and beauty of the choreography that exists this na the nature's choreography that exists that we're depicting. And then, you know, I do it all without music first, you know, mm -hmm. for sure. And just like let the like the pictures tell the story. And then I'll, you know, find a song, either something I like or something that Taylor has said he specifically wants for a scene. And then that might change things a little bit. Usually not much, but a little bit. And um, you know, you end up with something that uh that feels right. And um gosh, it's 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 difficult. 
it's difficult to make those choices and to take away those pictures. I wish people could just see the raw footage sometimes of what we have, but well, uh, you know, that would actually, at, at some point. At some point, I can see Taylor doing that. Yeah. At some point. But I'm glad yeah. you I'm, I'm glad you brought up the music, Chad, because yeah. what Brian and and Brenton have done with the scoring is just amazing. But each year we get more needle drops. And this year, with Lainey, the benefit of her coming in, got some songs out of her, plus other kind of westerny, cowboy feeling yeah. songs. Yeah. When you edit especially if we're going to have some as as transitions going to carry us from scene to scene. Do you know, always know in advance what song you're going to have? Are you cutting to the rhythm of the music or the score? Yeah, it depends. Um, you know, for the, the two worlds are, are really important, the needle drop world and the score world. First of all, um, Brian and, and Brett and Vivian are geniuses, and the benefit of our long relationship is that I have a very... Um, uh, a close relationship with them both. So, you know, if we have a long history now, a, long, a, a rather large library of cues we've used in the past that we can make temps with for scenes that are happening in, in whatever thing we're working on currently. And then they'll take, so I, I can say, okay, this is, this should feel like, you know, such and such that happened in season three. So I can temp with a piece of score from season three or two or four or one, whatever it is. And then they can go back and make it. You know, bespoke to the to the actual scene at hand and, and make changes to it or say okay I understand totally what you're going for here with this music I'm going to give you something different that I've had in my head you know either one of them could do this so we we work really closely together and go back and forth a lot um, as far as the needle drops sure I mean there you know, the, the story with Laney was really really fun and um, we featured a lot of Zach Bryan's music this past season usually what will happen is that we'll have two or three songs as options for a given scene mm -hmm. And I'll pick one that I like the best or that works the best for the scene, you know, for the um, for the affair, for instance, you know, for some of those, uh, gosh, what episodes were those? The fair was, that was, wasn't that down to um, seven and eight, dream is not yeah. me and a knife and no coin? Yeah, exactly. So so we'll have a few songs that they might have that, that they when put it this way, they'll they'll shoot several songs live and they'll record it and we have everything mic'd so we can we can make mixes out of what happened that day on set. And then I'll just pick one that I think works the best and Taylor will agree or not. I mean I we you know, we know each other well enough at this point. He generally gen generally agrees with my music choices. Um and then do I cut it to the rhythm of the music? Not really. I mean, there's an interesting thing with, with live performance. You almost, when you get into that, when you get into cutting stuff like that, especially if it's a concert that's happening within the context of the story, you actually kind of want to make it feel like someone is live cutting it, like in a broadcast booth or something. Do you know what I mean? Like as if you're watching it as a concert on television, like a live event where someone wouldn't know exactly where to cut, but they were like, oh, we're going to, you know, then we want to see Zach, we want to see Lainey, we want to see the guitarist here, the drums are doing something interesting. So I try to cut it as if it was a live event. And um, that means sometimes you're not you're not always on the beat. You're always just trying to find whatever was the most interesting. Um, I, I have experience cutting live music events, so that stuff comes in really handy. And I just go into that mode a little bit. This season, you had a lot of opportunity for live event cutting because yeah. we've got performances at the, the Yellowstone hoedown for the gubernatorial yeah. election win. We've got the uh, fair. You, there's also another one, I, I think, tied in with the branding. 
Yeah. Yeah. So this show finds a way to take advantage of my entire professional history and experience uh, in the most wonderful ways. You know, my background is early in my career. I did a lot of documentary television and, and film. I did a lot of reality TV and film. And you know, this show has opportunities to showcase the things that I've just learned that have now become instinctual. Um, I don't realize that I'm, you know, using experience on one show or another for instance you know like it's it's not it's not a conscious thing it's just this show has um has a way of challenging those of us that put it together by drawing on just a lot of different aspects of the craft and the art and so it is always entertaining it is always interesting it is always um it always has opportunities to try things that i've never done before you know you think about things like the um vision quest sequences from show from season four mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's there's an opportunity there to play around with how we depict experiences of memory, you know, and uh, and trauma and psychological trauma. So we get a bit of everything in this show. It is not, it's, this is not a three camera sitcom. You know, it is it is a show that goes to a lot of different places visually and and in the soundscape. It asks for the audience to bear with us as we try and experiment with new things, and um, that's what keeps it exciting. I mean, as an artist, it, it's thrilling. Now you mentioned something fun. This is not a three take a three camera sitcom. How many cameras, such as for the opening of One Hundred Years Is Nothing, the first episode of season five, the inauguration scene, or not even the you know the I won yeah. scene before the inauguration? That is some beautiful. The cinematographers did an amazing job. Yeah. But yeah. what I love is how long you were holding. Like the profile shot of John as he yeah. goes up there. You pick up the shot on the side with Jamie looking miserable as Jamie does. And then, of course, we go into the swearing-in ceremony a, a couple days later. And yeah. just the way you were holding those shots and letting them yeah. breathe. Just spectacular, yeah. Chad. Well, thank you. I mean, again, I appreciate you noticing all of that. And... Um, it's designed in, you know, we thankfully those shots existed, but I think what was interesting about that inauguration, I just had this idea as I was, you know, I spent a lot of time in the evening outside edit uh, with the sound, and uh, sound is something that is fun for me to experiment with. Um, I have a background as an amateur musician, you know, way, you know, the first half of my life, so enough to where I have a conversational um, uh, or a pretty easy way to converse with our with our composers about music and all that. No, I'm not the professional that, that they are with it. But the idea with the inauguration was just to get as, as deep inside of John Dunn's head as we could. That all of the sound from the from what's happening just melts away, and he's just caught in these images and these pictures. Like there's a girl singing the national anthem. We don't hear her. Mm -hmm. You know, we see all these reporters gather. We see everyone whose eyes are on him, and he's just lost so far in his head like what have i done like what what has happened to me like this is what he's asked for and it's the last thing that he wants and there's this little you know bell that starts to ring um you know the the, the, and the symbol of, of time passing like the inevitable march forward of time like you can't do anything now you're stuck here you have to live with it and so that again it's another spot where we've just experimented with sound and using you we use sound to tell our story uh in a way that hopefully was interesting to people um holding on those shots for a long time you know that's part of the language of what we do something that taylor likes something that i like and um you don't always have to cut away sometimes a person's face is telling a story in a way that is really interesting i mean different show but you look how we started the series 1883 mm -hmm. um 
the the opening of that episode one shot number one is a minute and 45 seconds on elsa's face we do not cut away and it's, it's you know almost two minutes long and and it holds your attention that entire time so i think we're always looking for opportunities to let the characters faces tell the story to let the story just unfold in somewhat uh, real time when we can and not be afraid to to hang hang there and just watch watch things happen you know as long as they're interesting i think one of the great examples of that where you're also you're holding we're seeing the faces again some great camera work with a lot of dutching so it really gives us a power play perspective where you're jockeying between the broken rock press conference and Jamie wanting to impeach yeah. John. And yeah. that cutting was rapier, Chad. Rapier. Well, thank you. That, that was one of the few... Most of what you see in Yellowstone, even the, the, the way Steve progressed was scripted. That was not. That was something I just tried and that, and that Taylor liked. So, um, so, yeah, there was an opportunity there uh, to, you know, to, to play those two uh, scenes against each other. And um, I'm very pleased with how that turned out. Um, you know, Jamie's character is this uh, interesting guy. He's part of the family, but he's also you know, a villain in a lot of ways. And um, so it was, it, it's, to me, he's a really fun character to experiment with and to play him against John or, or you know, or the, you know, what's happening over at Blackrock. And so, yeah, that was one of those, that was one of those, hey, let's try it and see if it worked. And it just kind of worked out. And we were all really happy with it. Now you've also introduced, it started at the tail end of season four, but also, we've got some here going in season five, transitioning, incorporating the double sixes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is it? Because that's like, it's really setting it up for the double sixes series that's eventually going to come. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that place is pretty magical. Um, I actually spent a lot of time out there. At, um, maybe, you know, I, I go, I travel to Taylor quite a bit to work with him in person. And uh, it's either at his main ranch or it's, it's at the Sixes. And so uh, it's a beautiful place um, with a lot of fascinating people. We do have a story to tell there. There are a lot of stories to be told there. Um, you know, Jimmy's character, Jimmy, the character Jimmy and his now um, uh, wife have, have made their way there. And so I'm, I don't know what happens in that story in the series because I'm not sure that that's been determined. If anyone knows, it's just Taylor at this point. But it's a really, really rich world. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different looking place. You know, it's got a beauty that, that is more flat and barren. But when you're there and the way that the sun hits uh, those buildings in the land, it takes your breath away. Every bit as much as it takes your breath away to see those same things in Montana. So um, I love the visual contrast that that place has uh, as opposed to the main Yellowstone Ranch. And um, I'm excited to see what happens there. It's a really fun place. Those cowboys are the real deal. Mm -hmm. The folks that are there doing that work are the real deal. Watching them in person, it's, uh, it just feels you're watching, like, you know, magic <laughs> in front of you. I can't think of a better way to describe it. And I, I also noticed that it's at a slower pace. The edits, it's mm -hmm. you're holding more. It's much slower. It doesn't have the kinetic energy or the phoneticism of... Beth and Jamie. For sure. I mean, it's a different, it's a different, you know, and I don't, I don't even know how much of that is conscious. I don't, I feel that it's not, but it's what the footage tells you to do, you know, like, or in my case, what I feel like the footage is telling me to do. Um, the pace of life there is very different. It's, you know, it's for as much as we're in, in Montana, Jamie's life, Beth's life, it's, it, it is, uh, 
you know, I mean, compared to the four sixes, it's it's big city stuff. So you know, just the the way that the the landscape out there, what it the way that you breathe out there is different. You know, I find myself taking slower breaths and just looking around, and it takes you know, you just take a long time to, to look around the horizon and see what's out there. And if you see a car approaching, it takes a while to figure out who it is, you know. Or if you see horses approaching, who's on? It just you just take more time to notice things, to to experience things. So it's I mean, again, at the risk of sounding corny, perhaps that's that's the feeling that leads to that type of editing. I don't know, but I do know that that place has a really special feel to it um, that makes you just want to stop and and look around and be at peace. So and you integrate physical sensation of being there. And you integrate it seamlessly with Yellowstone proper. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, thank you. You know, it's it's. They're of the same world. I mean, the characters are the thing that unifies that, right? So we're always going back to our characters, these people who are familiar, and watching them occupy these new spaces is exciting. So, you know, as, as much as, it's, as, as we enjoy watching them uh, around Montana, and like any time they're in a new environment, it just feels very fresh. It gives a different life to, to our characters. And so I think, you know, that's what makes it feel comfortable as, you know, for our audience uh, experiencing some of these new places. And um, it allows us to kind of nudge the story in different directions. But it all it all is of the same world. It's of the same, you know, the horses, like the relationship with the land. And so even though they're states and thousands of miles away, um, the, they're all very unified thematically. And I think that's what makes it feel that it all belongs together, even as we're just, we're, we're halfway across the United States from our other ranch, practically. How early do you get the footage for an episode to start cutting? I've got footage on Tuesday, so we have a pretty quick pipeline, and and it's it's taken some years to get that. Um, for you know, some of the places that we shoot in are rather remote, so maybe it's two days to get the footage from when it's been shot. But it's very quick, and you know, we shoot these episodes. Um, each episode is probably shot over 12 to 14 days. What we tend to do is what's called crossboarding. It's not, it's it's pretty normal. So we'll shoot episodes one and two at the same time, three and four at the same time, five and six at the same time. So you might get on any given day scenes for episode two and one or three and four, whatever, and uh, just start putting them together like that. And within a week or two of them wrapping production, we've got a cut of the episode and we can watch it and, and start to work on it. So uh, it can happen. It can happen rather quickly. Um, you know, there's a there's a shorthand that Taylor and I have uh, from these years of working together, where um, I'm pretty good at, at uh, putting it together the way that he's going to like it. Try to get it 90 to 95 percent there on the first viewing, and then we sit together and we hammer out the rest. And it's those in-person sessions to me that are the just the most enjoyable. And that's where we really make the show and, and sit there and get to be the first two people to watch it. So uh, that never stops uh, being a thrill. And. There's a little bit more of Chad's interview, but I have our live guest on the line. So we're going to come back and finish up the last seven minutes or so of Chad at the end of the show. Plus, his entire interview is up, will be up on, as a standalone on BehindTheLensOnline.net later this afternoon. So you're gonna get, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hitch up on, on every possible way uh, about Chad with an FYC for Yellowstone for Emmy consideration. Okay, but right now, this is a real treat. I am very, very thrilled, very happy to welcome Patricia Chica to the show. Hi, Patricia. Oh, hello, Debbie Lynn. 
I am so excited to have you on the show to talk about Montreal Girls, your first feature. Exactly. I'm very happy to be here, too. Um, and you're fresh off of Cannes. You were at Cannes Film Festival with the film. Yes, we had a we had a market screening in Cannes. It was great. Did you ever, in your wildest dreams, think that you would have a film screening at Cannes? Uh, you know, we when when we work in the industry, we always know that uh, eventually our films will go through Cannes. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, film markets. It's not the biggest, mm-hmm. so. It was uh, important for us to be there to trigger international sales and distribution for the film. Well, I have to tell you, I have seen the film. And, of course, now it also opened theatrically on Friday. Everybody Everybody will be able to see the film on digital on demand at the end of the month on June 27th. And I highly encourage them to do it. I have to tell you, Patricia, this is... One of the most refreshing coming-of-age films, because this really is a coming-of-age film for those who are 20-something, maybe even a little older, eye-opening for parents, uh, even letting them have their own coming-of-age and understanding of their children. I really thoroughly enjoyed this perspective that you brought to us. Oh, thank you so much. You know, this film is inspired by my own journey, navigating the subcultures of Montreal and coming from an immigrant family that is very strict and conservative. So it, it it's very authentic. It's very personal to me. And I'm glad to hear that it, you resonated with the story. I think anybody from any age and generation can relate to these characters. Because at the end of the day... The journey that Remy is going through, it's a personal realization journey of discovering who he is and following his heart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, I mean, I love the the story is very, it's very simple. We have Remy, he's, you know, he wants to be a poet. His father wants him to be, his do- uh, to be a doctor. Uh, he moves to Montreal. He's been accepted into a prestigious college. But he's it. The people that he meets, thanks to his wonderful cousin, uh, Tamer, who is a kick in the ass. He uh, he's just lights up the screen here. I got to tell you. Um, yes. But he opens him up to, you know, coming from the Middle East in this, you know, very cloistered, protected world. Uh, Tamer introduces him to bars and punk rock and women. And all kinds of fun things, as well as the artistic community of music and art and photography and poetry, all of which speak to Rami. And here he is, and you see, and this is a testament to Hakeem Brahimi, who plays Rami, a testament to him because we see the internal confusion come through on his face. Do I listen to my dad? Uh, do I do what I want to do? Do I follow my heart? Do I do what my dying mother had said to me? You feel that confusion and you see it. As to, he's got to now man up, so to speak, and figure out 
what is he going to do with his life? Absolutely. And you know what's interesting is that Hakim Brahimi, he's not a trained actor. Uh, he's studying to become an architect right now. And I found him on Instagram. Oh, my gosh. Uh, because I couldn't find exactly my Rami in within the acting community. So I trained him for a full year to get him ready to play this leading role in a feature film. And uh, there is a documentary on my Vimeo channel that you can watch where you see the whole training he went through with chi energy and mindset psychology and meditation and different techniques just so he can embody this character and become one with him. But it's a very authentic casting, too, because uh, Rami is Hakim and Hakim is Rami. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, uh, of him in, in the character. What I love about watching Rami, and it's something I think that it made me think about when I first you know, came out to California, and I was in my tw very early 20s, and he had this, as he goes into this club with the punk bands playing, and he gets this wide-eyed, you know, the childlike wonder of, oh, my God, your eyes get big as saucers. It's like, wow, is this what I've been missing? And then when he sees all the girls, because he wasn't used to seeing girls, apparently, uh, and it, his eyes just kept getting bigger, and he'd get a smile on his face. And I think everybody at some point in their lives can relate to that experience of the world opening up and it's like you're a kid in a candy store at that point I want to do it all I want to see it all I want to experience it all and then you have to learn there's a price for that um, and he just conveys that so perfectly perfectly yes uh I mean, the reactions we captured during the filming, for example, when he sees the two girls kissing, it was the first time in his life that he saw two girls kissing, and it was on set. So uh, his reaction of astonishment and to be marveled by all these characters, this bohemian, artistic, wild, and open-minded, free-spirited girls, it was a, a true reaction. It was almost like filming a documentary with this young actor. So that's why I believe uh, people feel the emotions. Uh, when he cries, he was thinking of his uh, dead grandmother who mm -hmm. had just passed away before the shoot. So a lot of the, the, the scenes resonated strongly with him, wow. and it transpires on screen. It really does. But then you also surround him with incredible talents. Um, Jasmina Parent as Desiree. She is spectacular. And the minute that I saw Hakeem and Jasmina on screen together, they have such a connection. I really want, it's like, oh, please, 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 go tell me you want to go out with Desiree. Tell me you want to go out with Desiree. Because mm -hmm. they just complement each other so well. Versus Sana Assad as Yaz, very exotic, very mysterious. And even though you've got Rami just lusting for Yaz, it's there was it wasn't quite the connection, the true emotional connection that you saw immediately between Rami and Desiree. Yes, 
So it was a really interesting dynamic watching them. Uh, and it's, I can't believe that you got, that your casting was such that you have this great triumvirate. And then you throw in, you know, uh, Jade Husani, uh, who plays Cousin Tamer, who's just, he's a kick in the ass. He is, he, he's the one that really is a catalyst for so much, but also a great sounding board for Rami. And he took, it, you just yes, he did is. a great he, job. Absolutely. Uh, Jade Hasune uh, really understood the dynamic of being a punk rocker with a heart uh, to being harsh, but being kind and protective. So playing that very con- contrasted dynamic with his younger cousin uh, really, he really shines in the film. Um, we get a lot of feedback from audience members that uh, Jade really uh, was a stellar performance, uh, and she's the, uh, you know, a supporting actor. So I'm very proud of the cast. It was highly, highly curated, and a lot of attention was put into being authentic from the culture, from. Uh, the region, uh, you know, the accents uh, of each character, their personalities. It was very important for me to have that uh, cultural diversity and representation on camera. So I believe uh, those connections uh, were fostered also with uh, the rehearsals we did and connecting actors with energy and with uh, um, just building up the bubble of connection was something that we worked very hard on. Well, and it, the authenticity of the diversity here, you've got cultural diversity, language diversity, gender diversity. I mean, it's, you got everything in here and everything is so fluid, but so authentic. And you, you've got French being spoken, English being spoken, Arabic being spoken. And what's so beautiful about this film, and I think it's the hallmark of and a testament to you as a writer and a director in and what you have achieved, is that you don't even need to read the subtitles because your actors are are so compelling in their performances. You don't need to read the subtitles to get the gist of what they're saying just based on body language and vocal inflection and cadence. And oh, that's a beautiful comment. Thank you. I, I, that's, I, that's something that I always look at. Um, you know, when I can understand and feel what is unfolding and I don't have to look at subtitles, it applies to foreign films. It applies to a, a film like this. That, to me, is the hallmark of a good filmmaker who knows what, they're doing in in your case in what she's doing and that's done through your impeccable casting your solid script and the act and I think all the rehearsals that you did it really pays off and the fact you wanted to stay true to everything to the cultures to the dynamics uh to the community um and it's so refreshing that's one of the biggest refreshing elements in this film. Just so well done. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Debbie, because uh, it means a lot that people receive the film as intended and that immigrant uh, people from the diversities and the communities can also recognize themselves on screen. Uh, it's very important to me as a filmmaker to bring that to cinema. Well, you've definitely achieved that here. Now, you mentioned rehearsals. Now, Hakeem, you spent a year working with him before filming. Now, how much rehearsal time, how long was the casting process for everyone else? Um, and then how much rehearsal did they have to work with each other? Because the dynamics are very interesting. You get uh, Phoenix and Sophia, for example, totally different than what we see with Rami, Desiree, and Yaz. And everybody's different. Tamer is on it. He's in a league of his own. So he doesn't even come into play here. Um, and then we've got, you know, the uncle and the father. So we see all of this. So I'm curious, how much rehearsal time, how long did it take you to find and curate this cast? And then how much rehearsal time did you allow them? Yes, uh, I started casting five years before filming because we were still in the writing process. So uh, while writing, I had actors in mind and I was writing for them and then I would uh, test the scenes with different actors that I liked that I thought could be good fits for the characters. And it was a very organic process that way. Uh, with Hakim, who plays Rami, the lead, uh, for the training last a year and I uh, also, Jasmina Parent, who plays uh, Desiree, she also trained for a year with him and I. Uh, but most of the training was, wasn't even touching the script. It was about building that connection and for them to find confidence in their body by connecting the body, the mind, the soul, the spirit of who they are and the essence aligned with the character. So we will do a lot of improv, a lot of meditation, breath work, even uh, sound healing uh, sessions. We will go into nature and then hug trees. We will discuss about timelines and past lives and the backstory, uh, the future, their ambitions, and really strip down and break down every aspect of the character's energy and essence. So when they when we started the rehearsals two weeks prior to filming, mm -hmm. it was already embodied. It was already owned within their DNA, their nervous system. And, um, and that, that's why people observe that strong connection. And uh, the other more veteran actors, uh, for example, Manuel Tadros and uh, Chadi Alilu, who plays the uncle and the father, they came in for one or two sessions maximum, just to read, just to, you know, place the scene. Uh, so it wasn't too much with the other actors, but mostly with uh, Hakim to help him become an actor, help him gain the confidence that he didn't have in the beginning of the process of just being present with his body on camera. Mm-hmm. Well, and that uh, we see a lot of this, and what you're saying 
uh, with connecting with nature and getting down to the essence and connecting with yourself and to connect with yourself, you connect with nature. We see that that comes through with in the character Desiree in particular. And when she speaks and tries to impart wisdom on Rami, but also, especially when we get into that third act, in that first act transition, when Desiree and Rami start hanging out a little bit, we see nature. But by the time we get to the third act, Rami is, he is enveloped in nature, walking in the woods, in the warmth of the sun. It's, he is, you can see that he is at, almost at one and at peace uh, with nature and the very essence of who he is. And this is where your cinematographer, Alexandra, does just amazing visuals. Absolutely stunning. It is very, very stunning. Ah. Uh, We work with the chakra system to color correct the film and compose the score. Every chief of department and every cast member received a color palette of their energy centers. And we really followed that as a template, as a blueprint to all, everybody work from the same frequency to convey the same emotion uh, as, a, as a group, you know, as collaborators. So that was very important to me. And the scene in the forest where you see uh, Rami walk and in connection with nature while, while he reads the, um, the poem his mother wrote to him, mm-hmm. that's actually uh, Hakim and I, we went to the forest one afternoon and we filmed that. And it wasn't supposed to be in the movie. We were just testing, uh, doing some chi energy in the forest. And those images finally m- made it to the final cut. So it was all improvisation. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And they speak volumes. That's one of the, the really amazing things with, with so much of this film, especially that third act, your focus on nature. And we don't need words. The images speak volumes as to where Rami now is in his journey of self-discovery. And... It's just exquisite. And then you punctuate that with the score. The score itself is beautiful. It's a a very subtle undercurrent. Some of the instrumentation is exquisitely done with just simple soft piano or some very soft strings. And that is a great contrast to the punk sound of Tamer's band and the loud screaming. Uh, that comes with punk and it just uh, the score really embraces and embodies that connectivity um, and that essence of finding oneself whereas the punk sound really is like the journey of going through heaven and hell to find yourself and find your path it all is just comes together so beautifully patricia Oh, thank you so much. I love your analysis of the film. It's so accurate and very heartfelt. So thank you for, for taking the time to notice all of those details. You know, how working, let's start with your cinematographer and working with Alexandre. 
what were your considerations visually when you were shooting? Because you're very judicious in your use of extreme close-ups. Um, you have you primarily stay with a mid shot, a mid two shot for the bulk of the film, uh, and as I said, very judicious in your extreme close-ups. You do get some uh, beautifully framed images, such as the one between Yaz and Rami outside with the brick wall behind them, outside the club, brick wall behind them, that becomes one of the still photographs in Desiree's exhibit. Um, just what were you looking for from a visual standpoint in terms of your visual grammar? For me, uh, for sure, faces. And I always told my cinematographer, Alexandre, uh, that the eyes of the actress are the windows to the, the soul. And the story could be told just by looking into their eyes. So that was a, an element that was very important for me. Um, and we lit the eyes. Uh, we color corrected every single pair of eyes on that movie. Uh, so it, it, it was very important to have that little spark of light in the iris, you know, mm -hmm. that we could see through their soul. And the composition was always something that I, I worked in my mind before the filming. So I came with uh, storyboards and uh, sample images that I pulled out from the internet or images I took with my phone and I printed them uh, of exactly the framing I wanted. But at the same time, Alexandre, he's so talented and he had also a great keen eye for framing and texture. And the common thread of everything visual was always see it through the eyes of Rami. He's a a new immigrant who just arrived in Montreal in a very different city. So we have to film Montreal through his eyes, his perspective and point of view of being uh, marveled, being curious, being surprised, astonished. Uh, you know, the curiosity of his point of view was something that was the guiding force throughout the whole camera positioning and the angles and the lenses we used. I mean, just, what cameras, what did you shoot this on, if I may ask? Yes, we shot it primarily with the Ari Alexa, mm -hmm. because we had a lot of uh, night scenes, and it's a camera that really uh, captures low light very well. Mm -hmm. And in some scenes, uh, we had so many characters that I requested the second camera to be filming at the same time, but because of the budget limitations, we had to... Uh, we could only have another camera, which was the red, mm -hmm. epic red, and we matched the Ari Alexa and the red in post production, so you couldn't see the different textures. Wow! And the one I filmed the dream sequence with myself was the Sony A7S, a, a, a lighter camera that I could hold uh, myself uh, in the forest. One absolutely wonderful. I'm surprised you didn't. Uh, well, yeah, the so I was thinking the Sony Venice too, uh, but which is absolutely fabulous with low light. But that is a heavier camera. Um, <laughs> so, oh my gosh! Now, what musically? This is a very eclectic blend. 
because we have the Bloodshot Bill music. We have Tamer's Punk Band music. Uh, and then we have the beautiful scoring. Uh, what were you looking for musically to bring all of these together so that they meld so perfectly? Yes, that was that was hundreds of hours of me listening to different types of music. I put out a call for uh, receiving songs from indie bands, uh, indie bands from Montreal, but anywhere really. And I received hundreds and hundreds of songs and MP3s by email. <clears throat> and I, I listened to everything uh, because for me, it, every scene has a tempo and a pulse and an energy and also an authentic voice, depending on where you are in the story. And I worked with the composer Suad Bushnak, who created the score, the instrumental score. Mm -hmm. And my partner, David Deyas, who is a musician, he uh, composed all the punk songs that uh, Tamer uh, sings. And I wow. also composed one song myself for Tamer. And um, we, we just wanted to create exactly what the vibe of the scene would be. And we worked with energy. So with uh, Suad Bushnak, the composer, I created a chart of colors and frequencies and the megahertz of each scene of where the emotion should resonate. Would it be from the heart? Would it be from the third eye? Or would it be from the, the uh, sacral uh, en energy center or mm -hmm. more grounding the root chakra, you know, so more tribal and also have the sonorities and the influences of the Middle East uh, that should uh, add flavor and authentic, uh, you know, landscape, uh, soundscape to the film. So we, it was very intentional. Every, everything in the film was very intentional. Now, you're also editor on this film. Now, was that a help or a hindrance for you? Because obviously... You know what you want for your vision as you're directing. Did you ever have a conflict with yourself in the editing stages as to what you did during the shoot and what you thought you wanted with what you ended up having to cut and put together? Uh, it, was a, it was a very lonely process because I edited the film during the pandemic and we were not allowed to be anywhere near anybody else. Right. So we had no choice <clears throat> to, uh, to be, I did it at home on the computer uh, with no team, no post team. So for five to six months, I was uh, facing my computer and my ideas and testing, but it was uh, a blessing because I was able to create and test and experiment a lot with uh, the dream sequences, mm -hmm. something that took a few uh, versions to get it right and that it felt right for me. And it was also a very healing process, to be honest with you, to, to be alone with the footage uh, because I found resilience. And I also found peace with uh, my parents uh, when I was uh, witnessing the scenes with the mom and the dad that, uh, you know, uh, come from a very conservative background. Mm -hmm. I was able to find the peace within me 
to say, finally, even though I struggled growing up in a very conservative family and I suffered from not being able to make my own choices or, you know, uh, going through a journey that I decided on my own, it just gave the result of putting this film together. And um, for me, it was almost like to forgive myself, not to have had my coming of age in my 20s, but to have it more at my age now, uh, in my 40s, uh, was very healing. So I think it was a blessing more than a hindrance to be the editor. <laughs> so you waited to edit till you had all of your footage, though. You weren't editing as you went. I didn't have all the footage. And when I had a rough cut that was pretty polished, I I knew that I was missing some inserts and mm-hmm. some nature shots and and things like that that I added in the edit that were not in the script. So we went back to uh, do a, an extra bit of filming after just to complete everything. Mm-hmm. Now this is your first feature, directorial writing, directing, editing. You've done shorts in the past. What was the learning curve like for you, if there was one, going from shorts to a feature? Oh, it was incredibly huge. Uh, just working with a larger team uh, that was very unionized, uh, that I had to respect schedules. Uh, the money wasn't coming necessarily out of my pockets where I could make the final decisions on set. I had to answer to producers and financiers and, you know, so a lot of uh, limitations that really uh, made me think outside of the box on how to find solutions because uh, the unions, the uh, associations, the guilds, they do not allow certain things (laughs) that we could do more on a short film, for example, when you're shooting in your own back. backyard yep. <laughs> so um it was uh that that was the biggest learning curve for me so now that you've gone through this and everybody the film is now coming out so everybody gets to see it you know what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into future projects future feature films i hope uh, yes, I learned that um, working with professional actors is much easier. <laughs> uh, that's something I, I, I want to really uh, explore in my next features is to have like really veteran, seasoned, experienced actors. Because spending a year uh, working with a young actor was amazing as an experience, but it's not something sustainable for every film, especially right. uh, when the funding doesn't allow to be able to pay somebody for so yeah. long. So um, that's my desire, to work with really uh, already established bigger names, uh, because in distribution it has also been a challenge to have this beautiful film with uh, incredible talent, but for distribution people want the face on the poster. Yep. They want the, the A-lister. They want somebody they can recognize to uh, trigger sales. 
So that has been a, a big learning curve as well, that distribution of an indie film, despite its quality, is not necessarily guaranteed. Well, I have to say, Level 33 picked up distribution for you here in North America, and you you got a good distributor with them, let me tell oh, you. Oh, they are amazing. Andreas and his team at Level 33 have been phenomenal. They believed in this film since the beginning, and they have been very supportive and bringing it to the world, to the U.S., uh, theatrical, it's a miracle, and I'm so grateful to them. And um, our, our publicist, Kim Dixon, as well, who has been reaching out and getting us. Uh, we got a, a great uh, review on the L.A. Times uh, a few days ago, so I'm very, very grateful with everything. Well, I can tell you from personal experience and knowledge, Andreas and his team, Andreas is very particular about the films that he takes to distribute. Um, and he picked another good one with you, uh, uh, hands down. So you're in very good hands with him. Yes, I am. So now what's, ne- right. what's next for you? Now, are you working on another project now, or are you just enjoying the birth into the world of Montreal Girls? Uh, both, uh, to be honest with you. I'm enjoying uh, speaking with journalists and reporters like yourself and meeting the audiences uh, during Q&As every day here in Los Angeles. And uh, I'm preparing three other features that are uh, different stages of development. So, um, you know, in the next year or so, I'll be filming the, the second feature, and I'm very excited about it. And will you be shooting in Montreal again? That's the intention, to film in Montreal. My team is there, and we have great tax credit and incentives. And, you know, the dollar exchange makes sense, too. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to look at that dollar exchange when it comes to filmmaking. That all, the almighty budget. Oh, Patricia, this has been so wonderful to have you on the show to talk about Montreal Girls. As I said, I just, I love this film. It is so charming. It is, it's something everybody can relate to. Um, at some point in their life, they have all, we've all gone through a coming of age of some sort. And you really showcased it beautifully. As I said at the top, you know, in a very, it's refreshing. The, the POV and the way you have presented this, it is fresh, refreshing. It's not the run-of-the-mill coming-of-age story that we see. And uh, I can't recommend it highly enough for everybody to catch it, either in the theater or at the end of the month when it's on digital and on demand. Job so well done. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. And for anybody who wants to know more about Montreal Girls, feel free to follow us on the Montreal Girls movie. And I answer to all the questions I receive from uh, followers and fans. So uh, feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, well, Patricia, I'm sure that somebody's going to, people all will be reaching out to you when they see this film. And I hope you'll come back on the show again. Absolutely. Count me in. Ah, Patricia, thank you so, so much. And you have a great first theatrical week of Montreal Girls.
Yes, thank you so much, Debbie. Thank, thank you for this great interview. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Patricia Chica, writer, co-writer, director, editor, Montreal Girls. And honestly, people, I didn't know what to expect when I sat down to watch the film, and I was totally charmed by it. Um, it is, and I, I don't want to overuse the word, but it is re a refreshing coming-of-age story of cultural differences, uh, commonalities, just so well done. And I can't wait to see what Patricia, after seeing this as her feature directorial debut, I cannot wait to see what she brings us in the future. So, all right, Pam, should we hear the rest of Chad? Pam's nodding. Yes. All right. So we're going to bounce back to the world of Yellowstone and pick up with the last few minutes of my interview with editor for your consideration for Emmy nominations, Chad Galstar talking Yellowstone season five, part one. Now, does Taylor give you the scripts in advance of shooting so you know what's For sure. going <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've read everything before it shoots. And so, you know, one of the things that we'll do is, well, we'll have different, we'll have um, second unit off shooting B-roll for specific locations. You know, one of the things that we talked about earlier, how we, we refresh our aerials and make sure that we've just got, like, you know, we're updating our, our, um, our scenics all the time. Uh, if we know that we're going to be in a town that we haven't shot in before, we'll send a team out there, and they'll shoot the buildings, the streets, you know, the cars driving by, and, and get all that stuff. So we're planning for all of that uh, oftentimes before we've actually shot whatever scenes take place. Um, you, Jamie's house, you know, where Jamie lives, was a different uh, location for us this season. So we had yeah, that's, advanced work there. That utterly shocked me. To see that's where Jamie now lives. Jamie with his delusions of grandeur. And that's yep. where he lives in a neighborhood two-story house. <laughs> the neighborhood sold his ranch. I mean, he was, you know, it's, it's just his, you know, and then I'm speaking for myself now because I've never actually talked to Taylor about this, but he was, he still wanted to belong in the, uh, in the ranch and in, 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 with his family um, and then he's also he's always been this family outsider you can find out you know that biologically he's an outsider obviously which is a, a big thing that happened um, and so it seems that he's just he's, he's moving in the opposite direction right instead of trying to imitate life on a ranch he's found himself just a house you know in a, in a suburb somewhere so um, he's a fascinating character and a, and a wonderful actor and a wonderful guy West Beth he's uh, yeah, I've, got, I've had the occasion to get to know him just a little bit, and he's um, he's a phenomenal guy. It's a very complicated character, mm -hmm. and it is fascinating to watch him work. So. so now, just one more question for you, Chad. This sure. is this is fascinating talking to you about this this show, but I'm really curious with as we're getting ready for the part two and the end of the series, hopefully in the fall, if the writers strike wraps and if directors don't go yeah. on strike. So, but as you get to sit back now and reflect on the first eight episodes, what do you feel is the most important thing that you brought or added to the storytelling for these first eight episodes? That's a really good question. I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way. I mean, I guess my job, I mean, if I were to define my job, it's to, it's to let the writing and the actors tell the story. 
and to make it feel real like it's happening in the moment. You know, I mean, when you talk about like some of these long takes, a lot of it, it what it goes to is just getting out of the way as an editor and letting Taylor's writing and these performances uh, do the talking for our show. Um, every once in a while, I'll do something that's showy or flashy, not for the sake of being showy or flashy, but just because it actually happens to be appropriate for the story. Um, but it's a, it's a show that, that um, I find my responsibility is just to, just to communicate, let the words come across as effectively as they can, to find the absolute best performance of, from these actors, and to not, be, um, to not draw attention to myself and my craft. And, you know, there are hundreds of us that work on these shows, and everyone has, I think, that same attitude that the, 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 the final product is more important than any of our individual jobs. And so I certainly see it that way. If someone, if someone comes away from a Yellowstone episode talking about no, you know, the editing specifically, I've you know, probably done something wrong, with a few exceptions. You know, again, we could talk about the Vision Quest, beginning of episode one of season four, a few places where it just draws attention to itself in a fun way that I don't think detracts from the story. But by and large, this is just, um, it's uh, <laughs> Shakespeare on a ranch is kind of how I think of it. And so I, I just try not to get in the way of what's happening. And I am as big a fan of this show as, I think as anybody else, and um, you know, the, the crafting together of it doesn't take that away from me. You know, I have a I have a, a job to do, and then I sit back and watch the episodes, and I'm just excited by the finished product. So. Well, I'm waiting to see if we get a high noon moment between Beth and Jamie, and who's going to draw first, and who's going down. That's I can't wait. <laughs> We're all excited. We're all excited. I mean, look, the strikes and all that are difficult. None of us want that to be happening. Um, we're all anxious to get back on the ranch as soon as we can. But, um, you know, for, 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 for what it's worth, like, we were making this show for a couple of seasons. It had a nice following, and then it just it, it exploded and became this phenomenon, and that's given it a different life, and it's been really fun to be a part of that. It hasn't changed how we've made it. You know, it's still the same show to us, and I'm just, uh, if you're in the business of entertainment, there's nothing more gratifying than people wanting to talk about the show, people watching the show. It's, it's really thrilling. So I'm grateful for, uh, for everyone that's, that's come along, and uh, I'm hoping to stick with us for another few months until we can get uh, part two out there. Then, you know, stick with the, whatever comes after since it's already oh, been... coming. Since, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to have another show now that supposedly is going to pick up after this one. So There will be another show. There will be another show. So I'm excited about that as well. And, and within Taylor's world, there's always a lot of stuff happening. So uh, there's never a dull moment here. And I will be watching. And hopefully <laughs> we'll get to chat again, Chad. Anytime. I'd love to. I enjoy talking to you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Chad. You take care. Bye-bye. And that was Chad Gallstar, editor. Yellowstone. So, Emmy nominations will be coming up when you're voting. Remember, for your consideration, editing for Yellowstone. And of course, in my world, everything for Yellowstone. Yellowstone definitely deserves more Emmy uh, acknowledgement than it's gotten in the past season. So hopefully, we'll see something great happen uh, in the coming weeks. So that is all the time we have today. Yes, we went way over today, of course. Next week, we've got another wonderful guest for you. And the last, I got news for you. I'll tease you right now. At the end of June, we're having a very elemental guest joining us live. 
one of the actors of the one of the principal characters in Pixar's upcoming Elemental. So, stay tuned for that. So, as I said, that's all the time we have today. But we'll be back next week. In the meantime, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.